So as I was preparing for today's message, I actually had a very heavy heart. Um, this whole past week, I've, I've felt this burden um, regarding this message in particular. And God has been putting it on my heart for a while now that we need to begin to talk about prayer once again. And it is something that really marked our church for many years. It really was the foundation for everything else that was happening in this house. It was what fueled and drove and catalyzed and made fruitful a lot of the different ministries that really stemmed from the foundation of prayer. Um, And as I was preparing for today, there was a sense in my heart of like a sense of grieving for something that was so alive in our church for so many years that has slowly kind of waned over the years because of many different things. So I had the sense of grieving in my heart, a sense of burden to really preach on this, but not just preach with human words, but really ask that the anointing of the spirit would be on today's message. And then at the same time, like this desire to see God do it again in our, in our midst and not in a way that's fabricated, not in a way that's compulsory, not in a way that's forced, not in a way that's program driven, but really like a divine supernatural move of the spirit in our church. And at the same time, I was, I was debating whether I should talk about this today because it is something that is very grievous. Um, there was an article that went out earlier this week, and it is about something that is happening right now in the Southern Baptist uh, movement in the States. Um, this kind of hit home, very close to home for me, because I graduated actually from a Southern Baptist seminary, um, and I was part of a Southern Baptist church. Um, there was this article that was published by the Houston Chronicle earlier this week, and it is it is about pastors and ministers um, that have used the church. Um, to get what they want. A lot of it that was reported on in this article was regarding sexual abuse. And it is saying that, you know, right now the, the victims right now are about 700 people and counting. The, the perpetrators are about 200 and counting. And the really grievous thing about this was that even though a lot of people knew about it, there wasn't anything implemented to make sure that it stopped happening. A lot of the victims were silenced over the years, and a lot of ministers were allowed to either relocate or continue to preach, continue to teach, continue to lead churches and lead counseling. And when I read this, I was just, I can't explain to you how much it grieved my heart. Because these are people that were entrusted with God's people. These were shepherds that people approached believing that they would protect them that they would lead them closer to the Father, that they would bring healing, that they were safe. And for someone to use the platform of ministry to do what they want and to drive people away from God, to hurt them in a way that will take years to undo, it just grieved me so much. And it is... You know, it is part of what God is doing right now 
in the global church. I don't know if you believe it or not, but God is doing this supernatural thing. I've never seen it to this extent before, where God does this clean sweep of his church, and he's unearthing and exposing things that have gone unnoted for years, that have gone unaddressed. And God, I don't know how he's doing this, but he is doing this in the, in the global church right now. He is purifying his bride. The things that need to go, that have gone unrepented, the things that have gone unaddressed, they're being exposed, whether it be within the church or through different means outside of the church, whether it be reporters or whether it be media. It is things that are done in the secret place, they are being exposed. And this is God's sovereign work in the church at this point in history. I've just never seen it happen to this extent. Uh, and it's happening in the States. It's happening in Korea. It's happening in so many different churches, so many different movements where God is giving his people an opportunity to repent. And when the church continues to perpetrate in this way and goes unrepentant in this way, God will close that window and will expose it and he will bring things to light. That is a scary thought. And yet at the same time, it's a very sobering thought. This makes you realize that it's his church. It's not a person's church. It's not a person's building, a person's movement, a person's brand. This is God's bride, and he will see to it that she is purified. He will see to it that she draws his people to him. And so today's message, I felt like it was confirmed by this news that... um, you know, that was published earlier this week. I'm going to be preaching on Matthew 21, Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up or your devices. I'm also going to have um, slides up here. Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. And it reads, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And so today's message is going to be titled, My House Shall Be. And as we've been wrestling with this, this vision of where is it that this church needs to be going in? How are we going to build this church? What vision do we want for this house? We've been really strongly impressed in our hearts not to start from the place of what do I want to see? What is my pet project? What is, what is my personal vision for this house? But the first place we should be looking to is God's word. 
And that's why we've been emphasizing what does he call every single believer to? And it's the first commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And there's in the Bible, so many different places where God has already defined the church. He's already defined what the, what the life of a believer should look like. And this is one of those passages where God very clearly expresses his heart for his church, whether it be this church or whether it be the church down the street, it doesn't matter. Every house of God should be called a house of prayer as well. God has a very particular idea of what his house should look like, what kind of people he wants in it, what kind of heart he wants conveyed, what kind of people belong there and what kind of people have no business in God's house. And it's so important for us to note this passage because God doesn't call it a lot of different things. It doesn't say my house shall be called a house of offering, although there are offerings. It's not a house of preaching, although preaching is really important and should be happening in the house of God. It's not called the house of music, although there is going to be music. He doesn't call it a lot of different things, and yet he defines it as it's going to be called a house of prayer. There's something so particular about the house of God. There's something that marks God's house and sets it apart from every other house. And that is prayer. So as we start this message, I want to show you this picture. This is a model of what the temple would have looked like in Jesus time. Now, all the details and other measurements, you know, that they're all kind of, you know, defined in God's word. And it was God directing the building of this house. And this was the whole point of it. It was that people who are far off from the Lord now would be drawn near to his presence. It was directed at facilitating worship. People who are once cut off from God can now approach him, having cleansed themselves through ceremonial washing and atoned their sins through sacrifices. But over time, what happened was that what once was a channel of encounter over time becomes a means of exploitation and crass business. People that were set in place to aid the worship of people were now making people jump through hoops, making people pay extra money and satisfy the whims of a religious elite, all the while making everybody feel like they did not belong in the house of God. That was never the intent of God when he established his house. So people, when they approached God and when they came into the temple, they felt like an intruder. They felt like an imposter, not smart enough, not clean enough, not holy enough, not righteous enough. All the while the religious elite had a monopoly over access to God and the entire ecosystem that built around it was to ensure that the rules and regulations were fulfilled by people that wanted to draw near to God but also ensuring that they would never feel entirely at home. So what happened was around the temple and the courts, merchants set up their business around this temple. So people, if you guys you know, have read the Old Testament, there's very clear stipulations of what your sacrifice ought to look like when you come into the house of God. It cannot be you know, a blemished sacrifice. It cannot be a blemished or sick or hurt animal. It has to be pure and spotless animal. And so people who came from distances far and wide, they could not ensure that the animal that they were bringing would make it all the way to the temple in a way that is pure. And so what people would do is they would wait until they got close to the temple and there they would buy their offering. 
They would buy their sacrifice, whatever they could bring to the house of God. Now, merchants around this place, they were set up. That was to facilitate worship. And yet what they did was that they hiked up the prices in order to make a living, in order to exploit this need that was there. And in order to get great profit, they would hike up the prices. So they were taking advantage of people who were there wanting to worship, wanting to bring a sacrifice that was worthy and that was blameless before God. They were being taken advantage of in this way by merchants. Same thing with money. There were money changers that were set up around the temple and it was to actually facilitate them being able to give a financial offering to the house of God. Now with the stipulations around this, it was, you cannot bring whatever currency your, your home, you know, your native land has. And so you have to come to the temple and exchange your money for coins that were minted in Jerusalem. And that was the proper offering to give in the house of God. And so what money changers did, it wasn't just an exchange rate. It was a hiked up exchange rate in order to profit off of this. And so an entire ecosystem built up around the temple, something that was supposed to facilitate worship. It became, it became a business. It became a means of making a living. It became an entire network, an entire business that, that took advantage of people who wanted to draw near to God. And it is in this context that Jesus comes into the temple. Now, Jesus, in this passage in particular, it's the same week where he's going to be crucified. A few days before he's crucified, he enters into the temple and he cleans it out. He he chases people out that were there, that kind of belonged there. That was their place of their, their place of work. People that felt they belonged there, and he chased them out of the temple. I want you to take a moment just to think about what it must have felt like for Jesus to walk into the temple and see these kind of people. These were people that were well established there. You know, they had their little shops, their little stands and you know like people know them know that that's where they've been for years and yet jesus the lamb of god who will be sacrificed in only a few days someone who's going to shed his blood somebody who's going to bear the cost of our sin on his own body he walks into the temple and sees people who ought to be facilitating worship and he sees them making a living by taking advantage of worshipers I can't express to you what God's heart must have been like when he saw these people. Instead of a posture of self-sacrifice, instead of a posture of servanthood, of wanting to, like, what can I do to draw people near to God? What can I do to bring you to God's presence? Instead of that, it was, can I make you jump through more hoops? Because you seem very desperate to draw near to God. Can I make you pay even more? How much will you be willing to pay extra? In order for you to draw near to God, it was that kind of heart, a heart that was very secular, a heart that did not belong to the temple of God. And this is probably, this is what I imagine Jesus felt when he saw this as he was basically on his way to the cross, knowing that he'd be paying the ultimate price to draw the broken near to God, knowing that those that had been entrusted with a mighty task of facilitating worship, they were the very ones who were hindering and exploiting those who would do anything to worship God. 
And so we go back to our passage and it says, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who are buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. What he envisioned and what God envisioned his house and his temple being about, it was about intercession, interposition, making judgment favorable, making supplication, meditation, and prayer. This is what was supposed to mark his house. This presupposes a few things. If we're talking about prayer, it presupposes number one, access. God's people were given access to God's presence. It wasn't God wanting to kind of rope them off and keep them at an arm's length distance. It was God's desire to give God's people access to his presence. The second thing it presupposes is that there's an open door for super for a supernatural God to invade a situation in war situations where the enemy clearly outnumbered his people in famine, where they could have perished in barrenness in situations where wisdom was needed in times when they were comfort uh, confronted with their powerlessness and weakness. They could call upon a greater name than their own. They could call upon a greater power than their own. So it was supposed to, Grant them access and an open door to supernatural power of God. The third thing that it presupposes is relationship, communion with a God who was previously unapproachable. God had no business associating himself with someone like us. And yet it was he who opened up the door for a broken relationship to be mended. That is what prayer looks like. It looks like access. It looks like power. And it looks like relationship. And Jesus, he wasn't just coining this new term. My house shall be called a house of prayer. He was actually quoting Isaiah. He was quoting Isaiah 56, seven. And it reads, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their joint offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable. And my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The prophet Isaiah does not describe God's house as a somber, rigid, religious affair. Well, they'll have to earn their way into God's favor. But God himself will bring God's people to his holy mountain and make them joyful in his house of prayer. It is not the prayer that is full of duty and obligation that we see here. We see Gentiles from all nations, people who weren't a part of God's chosen people, being grafted in, being accepted and brought into the full joy and access to God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It will be a house of encounter with God, a house of conversation and communion and oneness with God, where sons and daughters will boldly approach the throne of grace, not the throne of merit, not the throne of you're too sinful to draw near to me, but the throne of grace where every person not on their own merit could approach a God who is holy where the broken and the needy and the sick were brought in through the work of Christ. So if we go back to this text from Matthew 21, Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer. And that is what he had envisioned even from the beginning of time. But what happens, the people around it, the people that were supposed to 
facilitate worship and draw people closer to the presence of God, they were making it a den of robbers. So who was he calling robbers here? He was calling the money changers and the merchants robbers. Those instituted to facilitate the worship of God. They're supposed to be there to help people approach a holy God. And instead, they, they had made sure that it would become a business, that they would have profit. They, they, weren't, they weren't there to draw people near to God, but to exploit them. Now, this is a quote from Jim Simbola's book, Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire. He says, the first century money changers were in the temple, but they didn't have the spirit of the temple. They may have played a legitimate role in assisting people to worship, but they were out of sync with the whole purpose of God's house. The atmosphere of my father's house, Jesus seemed to say, is to be prayer. The aroma around my father must be that of people opening their hearts in worship and supplication. This is not just a place to make a buck. This is a house for calling on the Lord. So Jesus, in this passage, he kicked out the people who were using God for their personal benefit. They were gaining respect and holding all the power while keeping everyone else at arm's length distance from God, hindering them from access to the father who's aching to draw near to, to his children. And instead... Who was it that Jesus invited in to the temple? The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So the chief priests and the teachers of the law, people who are viewed as the religious elite, the people who out of anybody should have known better what the house of God was all about, instead of being in awe and thanksgiving at the amazing things that were happening right in front of their eyes, they were offended by two things in particular. One was that people had direct access to God. They didn't need them as mediators anymore. People who are broken, people who are sick, people who are unclean, they had direct access to God, and this was very highly offensive to them. And second, it was that God himself was receiving all the glory. Where in the past, people would have looked to them and be like, man, I'm so glad you're here, that you can mediate between me and this God that I just cannot approach in God. Word that is inaccessible to me. I'm so glad that you're here to be a mediator between me and God. Instead of that, people were just looking directly at God. They were saying, God, I'm so grateful for you. All glory goes to you. These two things were very offensive to chief priests and teachers of the law. Because in the same way that the money changes and the dove merchants were there to leech profits out of the house of God, the teachers of the law and the chief priests were also there to leech respect, honor, and glory that was actually due to God. They enjoyed the fact, they relished the fact that the normal, ordinary, broken person would utterly depend on them to grant them access to a God who was too holy to be approached. They benefited from people's feeling of inadequacy and self-condemnation. And instead of applauding the people who came to the temple for healing, they were indignant. They felt like those broken people didn't belong there while they had earned their place 
in the temple. The praise that Jesus rightfully deserved, he wasn't getting from the very people who should have known the best. And instead, the children worshipped him. And so the people who felt like they controlled the whole religious system felt like Jesus shouldn't have the power to call the shots in God's house. And in their indignation, they turn to Jesus and demand, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus, he says, yes. Have you never heard? Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praise. He's quoting Psalm 8 two. He's pointing them to a song and an inspired text that they should have memorized that speaks of the glory of God. This is the very same psalm that speaks of the God who set the moon and stars in place. And then it continues on to say, and who is man that you should be mindful of him? It's that very same song. And I believe it was Jesus's attempt to plead with their hardened hearts. Give to God the glory that he deserves to him alone. Let the children worship. Let the broken come. Do not hinder people from worshiping God. I believe that it was Jesus' plea to these people who are at the top of the food chain. People that were relied upon to exegete and to explain God's law to the broken. What is more, Jesus might have even been implying, you yourself should become like one of these children. Open up your eyes to your need like these sick people coming to me for healing. Stop hindering people from approaching God just because you think it's your permission and you're with a positive to give. Now, I remember having a conversation with a pastor a couple of years back regarding, regarding the, the topic of legalism in the church. And I asked him, what do you think one of the signs of legalism are in the church? And the thing the, the answer that he gave was prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is a first sign that legalism is pervading the church. And I asked him why. And he said that legalism means that we can earn our way to God and we are self-sufficient instead of God dependent. Where we can run services and programs like machinery without the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit, without the direction and the wisdom of God. Without an understanding that you need God. That this is his house. That people need to come to him for healing. People need to come to him for wisdom, for breakthrough, for whatever. So without an understanding that you need this kind of God, when all you have is machinery, when all you have is programs, when all you have is obligation, your prayer movement is the first to die. And we saw this over the years where prayer slowly became, became an obligation and a burden. Where anything spiritual, whether it be prayer, reading the word, discipleship, accountability, fasting, serving, where all these things slowly became a yoke. And we became inoculated with religious activity and immune to true relationship with God and with others around us. And that's what we saw over the years at our church. That was the first sign that we had that there was something wrong is when our prayer movement began to die. You cannot keep a prayer movement alive just through obligation. It just doesn't work that way. When you feel like the person you're approaching is not a relational God, 
when you feel like you have to be there because someone's taking attendance, when you feel like it's an obligation because you need to be a good Christian or because someone's watching or someone's taking note, the prayer movement dies. There's no way that the prayer movement will continue on and thrive. It is because prayer has become an obligation. This is another excerpt from the same book from Jim Simbola. He speaks on prayer and he says the following. Let me make a bold statement. Christianity is not predominantly a teaching religion. We have been almost overrun these days by the cult of the speaker. The North American church has made the sermon the centerpiece of the meeting rather than the throne of grace with God where God acts in people's lives. It is fine to explain about God, but far too few people today are experiencing the living Christ in their lives. We are not seeing God's visitation in our gatherings. We're not on the lookout for his outstretched hand. The teaching of sound doctrine is a prelude, if you will, to the supernatural. Everything that is taught, everything that is Every program that we have, every ministry that we have, it's supposed to be a platform for God himself to move. If it's not leading you to a living, dynamic relationship with God himself, then you're having a relationship with a church. You're having a relationship with a program. You're not having a relationship with a living God that wants to draw near. Now, let me expound a little bit about what, uh, what legalism does to a church. Why does God hate legalism so much? And by legalism, I mean saying you don't have access to God unless X, Y, and Z, right? You don't have access to God or you don't have full acceptance from God unless X, Y, and Z outside of faith in Christ. Why does God hate legalism so much? The first thing is that it diminishes the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. It is saying that Christ's blood isn't enough to save. It is saying it did partial work. It was insufficient in cleansing and redeeming and sealing a believer. That is what legalism basically communicates. Second, it wrongly exalts man-made efforts for, of righteousness. It is saying this magical thing will make you righteous. Attending this magical meeting will make you righteous. Doing this particular program will make you righteous. It is wrongly exalting man-made efforts of righteousness. Third, it misleads people to seek salvation in the wrong source. It directs your gaze away from God and from, uh, from God and to other sources. Just like Jeremiah 2.13 says, it says, My people have committed two sins that forsaken me, the spring of living water, And two, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So it misleads people to looking at something else for salvation. It can be, it can be holy things as well. As long as they're not God, it is still legalism. It can be a church name. It can be a minister. It can be a church program. It is still legalism. If it's not leading you to the source of salvation, who's God and God alone. Fourth, not only does it derail, you know, the glory that is only due to God, it cuts you off from the supernatural power of God. It cuts you at the knees when what we need is the power of God. You begin to not ask, not seek, not knock. 
And because of that, you don't receive, you don't find, and the door isn't opened. Finally, this is probably, in my mind, this is probably the biggest trespass of legalism is that it distances God's children from the Father's heart. I believe this is the biggest crime of legalism because if we were to think about not just the mechanics of how you are saved, but the why behind you are saved, you realize that the whole point of this whole thing is for God to relate with you, right? You know, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to build churches and to do all these great things. God could do it from anything. He could make rocks cry out if he wanted to, but he wants relationship with us. That is the ultimate goal and purpose of everything that he's doing. And so legalism, when it distances you from the father's heart, it it creates a gap that was already bridged by the blood of Christ. It, it basically robs you of the whole purpose of this thing. And that is intimacy and communion with the father. That is what the enemy has robbed. It's relationship. And we not need to be affected okay with that. Now let's go through this further. How does legalism particularly affect your prayer life? The first way that I would say is it makes you pray towards acceptance instead of from acceptance. It makes you think it is the price to pay for righteousness and it turns it from a privilege to a task. It's supposed to be a privilege. We're supposed to feel like you mean to tell me that I can actually talk to God myself. Like I can actually approach this throne of grace through what Jesus has done for me. I can actually say, God, you are my father. God, can you help me in this situation? God, I need wisdom here. God, would you, would you speak to me regarding this? I can actually have a face-to-face conversation with this living God. It's supposed to feel like a privilege. And instead it makes it feel like this is a price to pay. Like this, you're going to have to get through prayer. You don't get to pray. You have to pray. You must pray. It becomes an obligation. Second, it is you begin to pray without a sense of acceptance. It makes you think it is an unattainable goal. Like I'll never be able to pray enough or pray the right way. It turns it from an open door to a barrier to God. But we see how in scripture, Jesus Christ, when he bursts into the scene, he alone is a great high priest that leads us to the father. Paying for access through his own blood, clothing us in his own righteousness, taking on our weakness and our sin and our punishment that we would be reconciled to God. Christ is sufficient. You have been adopted into the family of God. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And now you have the privilege and invitation from God to pray from a place of acceptance and pray in acceptance. Hebrews 4, it says this, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Nephili, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us call upon the Lord once again. And this is what prayer is. Calling upon the Lord. Drawing near the throne of grace. Let us cast aside all the baggage that made it feel like a chore. Let the Lord wash away all the legalism and the sense of obligation, the feeling of inadequacy. For he longs to pour out mercy every morning and grace without measure. He longs to hear us invite him into our situations. He longs to partner with us in kingdom work. He longs to intervene. He longs to see his children look to him in their weakness that he might be our strength. He longs for it. Prayer is not supposed to be an obligation and it's not even supposed to be a meeting. It's supposed to be encounter with God. Legalism, obligation, all of this blinds us to the fact that prayer is supposed to be life-giving. It's supposed to be a source of refreshment. Like when you are burdened, that is the place you should run to, prayer. When you feel at your wit's end, when you feel like there are no solutions, you're not supposed to run away from prayer because it's one more obligation, one more task to add to your to-do list. You're supposed to run to prayer, run to the Father, run to the throne of grace where you're going to find mercy and strength. Now, this is what Mike Bickle says. Many leaders has substituted methodology and church growth mechanics for God's calling on the church to function as a house of prayer for all nations. They have hidden their barrenness behind the fig leaves of superficial cultural relevance instead of pressing in to walk out the two great commandments to love God and people and to deeply engage in the great commission. There will be two great trends in the church as we draw near to the coming of the Lord. Many will fall away from the faith And at the same time, many will rise up in wholehearted love for Jesus to participate in the most glorious and powerful time in church's history. Where will you stand? We cannot access God's power unless we're tapping into the power of prayer. A very well-known passage from Ephesians that speaks of the task ahead for the church and for every believer, it speaks about the battle that is ahead for us. And it doesn't talk about it as the battle against a person. It's a, it's a battle that's not against flesh and blood. It's against the devil's schemes. And it outlines what will be required of his church and what will be required of his people. This is a very well-known passage. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. With a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And what do you do with all these pieces of armor that are 
on you. What do you do? And pray and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And this is how he begins to close his letter. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly, fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. He is saying that prayer is a key that brings about the proclamation of the gospel. Prayer is a key that brings about the breaking in of the kingdom. Prayer is a key in engaging in the battle, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. But it starts from a place of knowing that it is a joy, that it is an open door, that it is a privilege, and it is a relationship. I remember when I first encountered the Lord, and I could not explain to you why I was praying, but I just could not stop praying. Like you could try to stop me. You could, you could try to encourage me to pray less, but I couldn't stop praying. It was like, I finally had a relationship and I finally had access to a God that felt so distant, a God that I felt it was like talking to just empty air, like, like a wall. And when I first encountered the Lord, I could not pray enough. And it was never out of compulsion. It was never someone breathing down my neck saying, like, you know, you need to pray. You know, you need to come out to this meeting. You know, you need to clock in these many hours or minutes, you know, in prayer. It was like I couldn't keep myself from praying. It was like I had finally access to this God. It was never a chore. It was a privilege. Like, man, I get, I really, I get to spend this hour with you. Like I get to speak to you face to face. I get to hear what you have to say. I get to commune with you. Like I get to do this. And it was such a joy. It was so life-giving. And I even remember, I even remember last year when things were very hard, when it was like, man, are we really going to make it through the season? Are we really going to make it out of one piece? Are really able to work through all these transitions as a church. And I remember the midst of all of that, prayer and worship literally became a refuge for me. Like that was the one place where, man, when I have no answers, when there is no right or wrong in this, you know, and there's just like, there's no guarantee of anything. The place that I would run to would be prayer. Like this is the place where I can find strength. This is the place where I can let go of my burdens. This is when I, when I feel like I'm up to my neck with responsibilities and a feeling of obligation and like, oh man, what happens if I fail as a pastor? What happens if we don't make it? All of that, when I felt like I was kind of drowning in this, I would go to the place of prayer and feel just God's grace, just like flooding in, saying like, look, I got this. This is my church. You don't need to carry the burden. Give it to me. This was a place of life. This was a place of realignment. This was a place of satisfaction. This is not the place where I took on more burden. This was a place where I actually got to lay it down.